Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually and then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 254 of Selling the Couch. Hope you're having a wonderful day. So today's podcast conversation is with Dr. Sonia Lott. Sonia and I have actually become good friends over these past years. She is actually a local psychologist based here in Philly, and we met at a meetup of therapists in private practice some years ago. Sonia was actually at a table, at a round table that I was that I was leading. I even forget what the topic of it was. I think possibly related to podcasting. We got to talking after that meetup and have stayed in touch. And I think this is just one of the most beautiful things uh, about our field. And I, I think just about the human spirit that, you know, casual encounters and turn into conversations, turn into friendships. And Sonia's actually also recently came on board as one of the moderators of the STC community, just because Sonia has such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to multicultural competence and creating a community where we can have difficult conversations, agree to disagree on certain things, but even have conversations that still respect the soul and the heart of another. And I felt like, especially during a season like this, that is just so important. Sonia actually has a specialization in complicated grief, and that's actually what we are spending the majority of today's podcast talking about. She obtained an advanced training, actually, in complicated grief from the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University School of Social Work, and is one of a small but growing group of complicated grief therapists here in the country. She's also the CEO and the founder of SEMPSYCH, which is a continuing education company in multicultural psychology. I wanted to have Sonia on because I know that many of us might be interested in doing more training, more work around grief, and especially we are in a season with COVID and the continuing racial injustices and the murders of innocent Black people that continue to happen in this country, many of us have had really powerful and realizations, and many of us are just in these, just are in deep stages of grief, right? And um, today's podcast conversation, we're talking about the the aspects of complicated grief. So what exactly is complicated grief? Is this something that's even in the DSM? Which is a question that I've often wondered about. What made Sonia choose this niche 
And there's intentional work that has to be done when you're working with a niche like this, right? And one of those things is you have to really have a small but intentional caseload. So how does Sonia manage having an intentional caseload? Where does she, how does she diversify income? But also, how does she both simultaneously realize that just because the nature of the work that you can, you have to have a limited caseload, right, in order to do really good work. But how does she balance that with a business hat? And so really uh, talking about that. And then we wrap up with this question of why is a multicultural orientation so important in general, but in specifically in grief work. And um, looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. So we will dive right in. I wanted to invite you to download the free online course guide if you are thinking about launching an online course and just want some things that have been helpful uh, for me and some of the tough lessons that I learned along the way. You can again download that over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. And as I mentioned right at the beginning, we're actually starting a live cohort called Online Course School. This is a great opportunity to join with other therapists to validate and launch and record your online course. The best way to find out about this and to keep updated when the core launches is to download, again, the online course guide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. Therapy notes. So we'll get right to today's conversation. Here is my conversation with Dr. Sonia Lott from drsonialott.com and sempsych.com. Hi, Sonia. Welcome to Selling the Couch. Hey, Melvin. I'm really grateful to be here. I'm so grateful for you, grateful for this time, grateful and excited for this conversation. And uh, it's always fun when to have a podcast conversation with folks that are your friends. And so <laughs> I'm excited to see where this conversation goes and just to pick your brain on, on lots of different things. Okay. So when I had reached out to you and, and just getting to know you, and I, I shared this in the intro for our podcast, you and I met on a, at a meetup of therapists, local therapists here in private practice. Yes. And since then, we've gotten to know one another. You, I mean, we've had multiple conversations. You're now one of our awesome admins for STC. Yay. Uh, you've taught me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you've, you've taught me so much. And today I wanted to just, you know, share and, and get an idea of learn a little bit more about you and some of the awesome stuff you're doing in the world. Okay. So your private practice is in related to complicated grief, right? Yes. Even for me, I know that sometimes there's a lot of confusion around what exactly complicated grief is. And so I, I thought I would start there because I imagine many folks might be you know, confused, especially if they're not doing grief work. So what exactly is complicated grief? Well, in answering that question, let me first say that all grief is complicated. Um, and that's part of the confusion, I believe. And what's happening right now, there's a transition with the DSM-5 and also in the ICD-11, the International Classification of Diseases, 11th edition, that complicated grief is now being talked about as prolonged grief disorder, which gives great clarity to what we're talking about. So complicated grief slash prolonged grief disorder requires around a year or so since the death of a significant other or loved one, close loved one. And the person is still 
in a place in their grief where it's interfering with their day-to-day functioning. So the person is stuck, has gotten stuck somewhere along the what we believe to be a natural adaptation to loss. And they might have difficulty regulating their emotions, intense yearning, longing for the individual, feeling that life is without purpose, that their identity is part of them is missing, if you will. Who they were when this loved one was still living is now missing. There may still be some sense of disbelief around the person's death or difficulty in finding meaning for why, you know, this particular loved one died in the way that they did. And the person also is likely to be in a place where they're avoiding as much as possible as reminders of the loved one, like photographs, going through their belongings, going places that they used to go together for fear, fear of being overwhelmed with emotion. And so again, it's to the extent that it interferes with their day-to-day functioning. And that's an important distinction to make because grief is lifelong. We never stop missing. We never stop wanting our loved ones to return, even though we know they can't. So it's just the intensity where the grief and all of the associated tasks with adapting to loss are still in the forefront of the person's life, as opposed to being more integrated into their day-to-day functioning. Got it. So you said one of the key things of this is that it interferes with day-to-day functioning. Again, this might be a really silly question, so please forgive me. So (laughs) I guess someone that, I don't know, is someone that maybe like, I don't know, one day they seem like perfectly fine and capable of doing, you know, driving to work, like being able to do work. And then, but then like, I don't know, the next day or for the next several days kind of cycles back. Is that still considered complicated grief? Like if it is beyond that year or around that year time period? Not in and of itself, because, you know, there are always these anniversary dates that that often remind us of the loved one and bring us back to the original sense of loss that we felt when they died. Um, and that's the same, you know, for birthdays, for if it was a couple the day they met or when they got married or when they moved in together, or if it's your birthday without the person or your child's birthday or your mom or dad's birthday, they're just all these associations with the loved one who's passed on. And so depending on, you know, the meaning that we have still connected to those dates with the loved one, there may be waves of struggle so that the person may need to take several days off from work. So in and of itself, that ebb and flow that you might see, if it can be explained by an anniversary or that you had a a very vivid dream or like a visitation that some people refer to it as from a loved one who's passed, that may like throw you off balance for a couple days. And coming back to the realization that it seemed like the person, so real the person was really with you, but then they're not. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, yeah, no, I, I, I get that. You said you said something earlier, which I thought was really interesting. So you so it sounds like this idea of prolonged grief disorder, mm-hmm. this is something they're really weighing as almost like I guess would this be like a separate diagnosis or what would like would it be its own thing or would it be housed under something? That's a good question. What's happening again with the revision is that Right now, it appears in the DSM-5 as an other traumatic 
um, and stressor-related disorder. And it's also in the back of DSM-5 for conditions that need further research. So it was just this year that the committee and Catherine Shear, who is a psychiatrist who created the Complicated Grief Therapy Protocol and it's overseeing the research, was a part of that particular team to come up with this most recent revision in terms of how it's categorized. So it's going to be in the DSM-5 OOPS or the DSM-5, you know, TR, whatever the revision is going to be, (laughs) it's going to be listed as a depressive disorder, you know, like major depression, uh, major depressive episode, persistent depressive um, disorder, bipolar, and all of those, but it's to be distinguished from a major depressive episode. And many clinicians get and people outside of psychology, I mean, of mental health also, get confused about the difference. But if the symptoms, because a lot of the symptoms do appear to look like or they're shared by, you know, um, prolonged grief disorder and a major depressive disorder, but the reason for the symptoms is really what's the distinguishing factor. You know, if it's around the loss of a significant other, then it's, you know, thought of as complicated grief or prolonged grief. And also you don't have the longing for a loved one in a major depressive episode. Ah, I see. That's one of the key differences, yeah. And it's also possible for a person to have an already existing major depressive episode happening before uh, complicated grief or prolonged grief occurs. Oh, wow. So I guess in that scenario, what, I guess, what would the diagnosis be or how, you know, what sort of the protocol? It would be both. And it would likely make the most sense to try to, you're going to treat what's most prominent. And if, um, for example, if the person is suicidal, which is typically not always a part of, you know, a major depressive episode, but it's very possible. And that looks different than somebody who feels like, they don't care if they don't wake up the next morning because they're still without their loved one. But it's not an, an, an active type of wanting to, you know, kill oneself, if you will, um, or commit suicide. So it depends on what's prominent. So like if a person has suicidal ideation, that's going to be the first thing that you're trying to address before you are moving into the often painful but transformative uh, protocol of complicated grief therapy. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, I don't know, just the the multiple layers and the multiple nuances around this. And yeah, just, yeah, just awareness, I, I think, to, to like a point of like really being trained in this, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to distinguish and the subtleties in this. So yeah. I wanted to shift a little bit and ask you a question, which I feel like many, for many private practitioners, I know for me, that I selected a niche and an area of focus that really resonated for me. It's, it's, you know, like something personal to me, right? And I was just curious about you, like what made you choose this niche? Okay, so the short story is my mom died in 2015. Um, and I immediately uh, knew that I was going to return to clinical work because I left clinical work and had been teaching for at least 15 years or longer. And I never thought I was coming back to clinical, but I knew it immediately. And I knew it because well, it, it was sort of like 
and this may sound a little odd, but mom now is able to boss me around in ways that she couldn't when she was here um, in the physical. You know, I would push back when she would try to run my life for me as an adult. Well, as a teenager too, but anyway. (laughs) So it was sort of what she told me was my next step. And so with my mother's death, it has been the most profound loss to date that that I've ever experienced. And I was so broken open. I was so just ripped up. But there was this beautiful transformation that occurred for me in that most vulnerable state. And so in gratitude, really, I felt like I needed to come back to clinical work to do this specifically to be able to help other people to transform their experience of uh, grief and loss. So that's a short story. And the long story is that I've always felt a calling from age 21 when I first started my graduate program. And, but I cried through my entire semester of death, dying, and bereavement. And so (laughs) I did every time I opened the book or went to class. And so I needed to grow up emotionally and I needed to experience profound loss, uh, which I did actually with my dad, you know, a couple decades before mom. But I just needed to grow, you know, emotionally and spiritually to be able to show up and hold the space that's required to be present with somebody in grief. So when mom died, I knew that I had everything that I needed and she supports me along the way. That's so like, I don't know, just beautiful, just how, you know, you'd like to go through that and embrace that. I I mean, you and I have talked about this privately, which is and now it's on a podcast, but um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I too have been drawn for like as long as I can remember. I mean, definitely like grad school and maybe even mm-hmm. undergrad mm-hmm. toward grief and, you know, death and dying and sort of all of the, you know, the existential things that exist with that. And I too have felt that sense of, I don't feel like I have the the knowledge, the wisdom or the maturity or the spiritual maturity like mm-hmm. to handle it. And mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I don't know, for me, even just hearing that is is encouraging one, just because I think, I don't know, I, I felt like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I, I feel like in some ways I've been a little bit running away from it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I get that. Then, yeah. <laughs> Not from you. I'm just saying I understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That, uh, yeah, that tension. I, you said something earlier, just a little bit ago, that I wanted to just ask you if you could just to share a little bit more. You said there was a transformation that occurred as a result of mom's passing, right? And a transformation within you that you, that you realized yeah. you were ready to do this work. Mm-hmm. Take us inside that transformation and what that, what that looked like. Um, one of the things that is necessary when after the loss of a loved one to fully integrate the grief and to get, quote, back on track is to find new meaning in your living without that loved one. And, you know, my mom is still, but really was so much a part of who I am, you know. And so it was like, it, it was a part of finding my new purpose, recognizing that my world as I knew it had been shattered from the moment I got the, the, the phone call, you know, and so mom's death, it sounds like, was sudden. Yeah, 
yeah, it was sudden, very sudden and unexpected. She had been given the, you know, that she would die quickly if she didn't have the surgery 14 years before. So we had sort of relaxed into that not being true, you know, and she lived a full life for those 14 years, um, including, you know, until she went to bed that night, you know. So it was, yeah, unexpected in that way, though she had been sick for some years. And so it was, I had never felt that a broken open is the only way I can say it, that vulnerable, that raw, that like totally, like I wouldn't be able to put, you know, one, one foot in front of the other, you know, and, and just sort of being able to see my parents, both parents at that point in a different light, to see myself in a different light, to find new purpose, to recognize the wholeness that existed within me, to be able to go that low into feeling broken and lost and to almost like a phoenix to, to come back together as, you know, aware of my wholeness and with new purpose and, uh, you know, just knowing the truth about myself and the world, I guess. I don't know really how else to describe that in this moment. It's more like a feeling tone and just a real transition too in terms of what I believe to be true in a spiritual sense. Um, and that is in part because my mom has been present to me and with me since her transition, the same day of her transition. So I understand so much more about souls being eternal and what happens, at least some of what may be happening after we leave our physical bodies. No, I absolutely. Hope- no, I mean, I, I think the thing, it's, it's funny you mentioned the Phoenix because that was actually the image that came in my mind. Mm. And then the other thought that I had was almost like, finding yourself in your brokenness is, right. is sort of the phrase that right. you know that that made you feel like you were ready for this work. Right, right. I noticed that you used the word transitioning to describe like mm-hmm. mom's passing, right? <laughs> like so I imagine there's a lot of like subtleties around language. Yeah. Can you take us a little bit behind, like, even like as a, as a clinician that does this work, right? Like, I mean, I feel like honoring that, that sort of language is so important. So how do you even navigate that, like in sessions and things like that? Well, I listen very um, deeply, or I try to listen very deeply, let me say that. And so one of the things in the, in the first, you know, I always offer uh, prospective clients used to be, you know, phone consults, free phone consults. Now it's, I give them a choice video or phone and prefer video. But I listen very deeply to how they talk about their loved ones, death, transition, uh, moving on, passing on. And I mimic, I use that same language. Um, and I actually write down, you know, what they, the, the language that they use to describe it. So I meet them where they are and go from there. Yeah. I don't know. I, our one of the most, I, I think about like one of the most basic counseling skills is right, like the art of listening, right? Yes. And yeah. It's almost, especially for this work, it, it seems like that needs to be almost like be taken to the a next level, which is actually quite a beautiful thing, you know? Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And and it is, it's a deeper listening, I find, than than what I used to do when I did therapy before for, for other reasons. But yeah, and what happens, interestingly, is that often the language that a person will use to talk about their loved one's death or transition or passing shifts as they move deeper into the acceptance and more fully, and this is with acute grief also, and more fully into finding new purpose in their living without the loved one and so on. It changes. Oh, that's so interesting. So 
again, not to put you on the spot, like, but what would be like an example of like language someone might use like in the very early stages versus someone that's further along and and reconciling and and forming you know that whole identity again? It may be um, my um, partner left me to toward the you know when they're moving further through. We'll talk about it as my partner died or for some people saying transition may at the beginning may feel softer and may feel like there's a possibility of return and then we'll later be able to say they died and they're not coming back. So, you know, the meaning that we give to the words varies person to person so that transition through may end up being very, you know, different. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It mm-hmm. does. Like it's, it varies. I I think the big thing I'm taking away from this is just the importance of listening to those subtleties in language, right? And and how it is like unique to every person, mm-hmm. right? Transitioning, for example, may mean one thing to one person, but something completely different to someone else. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, just shifting again a little bit. Um, okay. One of the things that you shared with me is that you have to have a smaller number of clients in order to do this work. Uh, How come? Because the work is grief knocks us back in a way that nothing else does. And that's if we're experiencing it ourselves or if we're being present to somebody else's experience. It evokes our own, triggers our own memories of loss. And if we aren't balanced in our life and our living and in our practices, you know, taking care of ourselves physically, you know, cognitively, emotionally, and spiritually, then we can't really be present. We can't really create, maintain that space with the person who's in grief. And if it's acute grief, it's usually really very raw. But at the same time, if it's complicated grief, the person has been stuck. And so part of what you're doing is reactivating the grief in a way that it can be reprocessed, if that makes sense. So and the person has been holding on to it or struggling with it for some time, and it's likely that they haven't had anybody else that they can talk to about their grief. People have tuned out long before a year, or sometimes it's a decade. So that you are the person that they feel safe expressing, and it, it, it's deep. It's just so deep, the emotional piece, that you have to really take care of yourself as a therapist to be present to that, to hold that. And if you're really empathic or highly sensitive as a highly sensitive person, as some of us uh, refer to it as, then we can very easily take on too much of that. It can have a negative impact in our own lives. So it's really important to limit the number of people that you're working with so that you can be fully present and take care of yourself. And also, one of the things that I do is I encourage my clients to call if they need to check in. They rarely do it, and I know that. But what, again, is important is that even though part of the treatment protocol is to help them to connect with a primary support person and bring that person in to help them into the session to help them to understand what complicated grief or prolonged grief is and all of that, the therapist is usually the only person they feel safe expressing where they are. So even though, you know, like I don't have my phone on if I'm sleeping or if I'm having dinner or out with, well, pre-pandemic, out with friends. <laughs> but Soon we'll get back, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully. But 
I still, you know, seven days a week, keep myself open to if clients need to check in. So it's important to have balance around, you know, how many people I'm working with and being available to in that way. And like I said, clients rarely call, but yeah. I guess it's almost like just for you, like mentally creating space for that possibility because of the nature of the work. Right, right. Yeah. I'll shift a little bit here. So I wanted to pick your brain on something. So on one hand, it makes sense to have a, a smaller number of clients, but, but you know, like we're all business owners, right? Right. And we have to pay for expenses and life stuff and all of that stuff, right? So as someone whose niche is complicated grief, how do you balance that business hat versus limiting your client load? Yeah because of the, the reasons that you mentioned, which make perfect sense. Okay. Well, one is I'm private pay. Even though I have some discounted space, I always keep you know a certain number of spaces. And sometimes I go over that, but depending on the person's need for people who can't pay full fee or you know at least temporarily can't. So being private pay takes a lot of the sting out of having a small caseload. I limit my work to three days a week, Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. So that, you know, I can be, I can be fully present like all day, you know what I mean? Versus five days a week or so it's three days a week at times that I'm most awake, which is an early morning (laughs) and I'm just pushing back. I'm letting go. I'm ending my day earlier than I used to. Yeah. It's almost like you're creating a container. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. A container. That's it, Melvin. Thank you. You're welcome. I mean, that's the image that came to mind. I mean, I appreciate yeah. it. You said it. It was like a very subtle thing, but I also appreciate the fact that, and and I think a lot of clinicians, I mean, I know I definitely made this sort of mistake, which is I was so worried about getting clients that I almost like <clears throat> scheduled according to like where I thought, you know, like folks would show up versus being like honoring and respecting my own energy energy levels, yeah. for example. Yeah. So I appreciate you saying that because, I mean, that's it's just a, a cool awareness, you know. Yeah, I appreciate you observing that also. I also have a home office. And again, you know, pre-pandemic, now I'm, I'm, I'm in one little space where, you know, I'm online, but I still have a home office, which helps. And then I do a lot of other work to, you know, generate income and have some variation in my life that's also very purposeful. And I'll just say quickly if that's okay with some of the, okay. So pre-pandemic, I used to, <laughs> I've done it online, but it's, it's really very different, but um, go into organizations um, and provide brief support when an employee, you know, dies and, you know, go in for a couple of days and like three or four hour blocks and sort of just be present for folks to grieve in the works, in the workplace, you know, to come in and sit and it, you know, loss of a coworker, or loss of anybody that you know and care about triggers your own losses. So, you know, people come in and talk about their own losses and ask questions about, you know, what do you think? If I can't go to another funeral, I can't do it. Is it okay not to go? How can I still honor the person some other way? And so I work with administration or management also to help them to know what to expect from the coworkers. You know, sort of the psychoeducation approach, helping them to understand what gets triggered in other people, when a death occurs and, you know, of an employee, how to make decisions around when to clear out the person's office or cubicle, 
ways to honor the love the uh, employee who's died, which is oftentimes the loved one. You know, our coworkers are like our other family. And so, you know, and be available to them for an extended period of time for consult as needed. Um, and also to help, you know, management administration to deal with their, their grief also and, and to help them to find a, a sweet balance between allowing other employees to grieve in place, in the workplace, if you will, while gently nudging or supporting them and getting back to a pre-death level performance, if you will. Yeah. I think one of the really cool things about this is that, you know, you realized what your niche is and then you actually took like intentional steps to say, you know what, like, where would this be happening Mm -hmm. where my services are needed Mm -hmm. and that I can sort of think up beyond the box of like, I see them one-to-one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me just say, honestly, that I wasn't that intentional at the beginning. I just kept getting, (laughs) (laughs) I just kept getting calls from people saying, can you come in tomorrow? We found you on psychology today, or we found you on goodtherapy.org. And, you know, our beloved employee died and everybody's a mess. And so after I think maybe the third call, it occurred to me, wait a minute, there's really a need for this, you know? And, And so then I got more intentional about, you know, offering those services to organizations. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you said that because (laughs) I feel like for most of us, the business journey is not so clean cut and and, and like we have it all figured out on day one kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But so it sounds like even like these online directories, right? Like they were just a good source of initial referrals. And then I would think like, especially when you're working with like organizations and stuff, right? Like, I mean, it's not like you just go in like one time, right? Like grief and death happen, right? Well, yeah, they I, they call me back, you know, and they also, you know, talk amongst themselves and share with other organizations and the employees share with other people that they know who then will go to their employer and say, hey, we know this really great grief therapist. Can we invite her to come in for a couple of days, you know? That's cool. Yeah. So and what, one of the things that I've learned is that some companies say, well, we already have an EAP program. Mm. And it's like, well, that's very different than acknowledging the loss in the workplace and creating the space for people, employees to grieve together. You know, uh. it's sort of like a family grieving together. You don't go, you know what I mean? It's, it's yep. creating the space. And so employees feel more cared for, you know, in the workplace. And they tend to be more productive, you know? Yeah, right, right. The organization, like we are, you said it well, that we are grieving together as opposed to I have this EAP service where I can go get individual therapy kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really more support than need for, quote, therapy. So that's one of the things that I do to balance. And then just really quickly, because I'm aware of time and there are a few other important things that we want to try to cover. But I also have, you know, you mentioned this in the intro, that I'm the CEO and founder of a continuing education company that specializes in multicultural psychology. And I'm an APA-approved sponsor of continuing education for psychologists. And so that work tends to be around multicultural competence, cultivating a multicultural orientation, and everything related to mental health, but from an authentically integrated multicultural perspective. That keeps me busy. And since COVID and the ongoing deaths of uh, murders of uh, Black people by police officers, I'm doing diversity training in large organizations and working with therapists around 
their own work, if you will, as you and I talk about it, doing their own work around what it means to be a multicultural being. So I'm, I'm really like totally busy. And so now it's like, particularly with COVID and, you know, the ongoing murders and the shift in the culture around, you know, that I'm having to practice balance. I'm being more challenged by balance is probably a, a nice way to put it. No, absolutely. I mean, and we, you and I have privately talked about this, like we are in such a unique time. And that was actually the last question that I, I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. because yeah, we are in such a unique time, right? We're recording this, we are battling COVID-19 there. And then on top of many of us have been awakened due to the, you know, countless racial yeah. and systemic injustices, yeah. the murders yeah. of black people mm. uh, that continue to plague our country, the world. And, you know, in even, I mean, you, you've been such an instrumental person for me, especially in this season of life, to think through some of these things and especially make like big decisions for STC because, I mean, you and I get have privately talked about this, but like, I think one of the biggest visions I have for STC is how do we create a community where we can really have this journey toward multicultural competence that all of our professions really call us to do, right? right? Mm-hmm. But, and also how can we agree on things, disagree on things? How do we create a safe space where we still respect and honor the heart of one another, right? right? Even mm-hmm. if we may not agree, mm-hmm. right? I feel like, so, I mean, I know we have talked a lot about this. I feel like that's also relevant in in grief work, right? So why is like, something like even cultivating a multicultural orientation so important when you're doing complicated grief work? Okay. Um, this is a really important and it's, I'm going to try to keep this not as long as it likely could be, but in one way it isn't any more important than um, with any other type of work we're doing as mental health professionals. And then at the same time, it just shows up differently. And so I feel like I just want to explain to our audience what a multicultural orientation is and multicultural competence quickly to explain why it's important for any work we're doing as, you know, therapists, researchers, educators, or some combination of that. Um, We're talking about a multicultural orientation. Um, We're referring to both some interpersonal and intrapersonal components. And so from an intrapersonal perspective, we're talking about having an awareness, an authentic perception of oneself, you know, a healthy ego and knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, particularly as it relates to your understanding of what it means to personally be a multicultural being and to know that every every encounter that you have is a multicultural one because everybody else is a multicultural being as well. So it's having that awareness of who you are, what you know and what you don't know. Um, it is knowing that no matter what dominant group you may have membership in, you know, if that's based on race or religion or sexual orientation, whatever it might be, you know, there really is no superiority that you are no better, if you will, than anybody else, no matter how you may be different. So it's that, that it's that cultural humility, if you will. And it's also being other centered, focusing not just on your own needs or what is important to you, but what is it, where, who is the other person? What are their needs? How have they been influenced by their life experiences based on cultural identities? So that's what we're talking about with the multicultural orientation. And in knowing what you, that, what you know and what you don't know, 
to the extent that that's possible, you remain open to learning more about all that we need to know about ourselves and others based on our cultural identities and all of the impact of all of the systems that we are a part of. So in that way, that's how we can establish authentic therapeutic relationships with the people we're working with, which is crucial for any, quote, help to or healing to happen, right? Yeah. So in that way, it's the same. It's no different than in any other work we're doing with any other person. And it helps us to be aware of the harm we're doing when we don't have that multicultural orientation or that multicultural, quote, competence, which is lifelong, by the way. So it keeps us open and it allows us to see with new eyes and to know when something cultural is relevant to the work that we're doing with a particular person. And it also gives us the comfort to address it as it, as it presents itself. So that's the importance of a multicultural orientation in anything. You explained that so well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So as it relates to grief specifically, there are some really important ways that, you know, culture influences the experience. And particularly as it relates to religion and spirituality, um, what we believe, you know, our religious and spiritual beliefs have a lot to do with the rituals that we engage in that can be really healing after the death of a loved one. You know, rituals sometimes in some religions like Jewish, Jewish traditions, where it's a year long mourning process. And there are periods in which you're honoring the person. There's a, a period when how long people are sitting with you, pre-pandemic, and so on, you know, that help for healing. And also our religious and spiritual beliefs influence what we think is the meaning of death, how we make sense of our loved one having died under any circumstances, and also what we believe happens after they die. So, for example, people who believe that there's a heaven and hell, if their loved one was a a well-intended, like, good old sinner, um, they may be afraid that their loved one is literally burning in this in a fire, you know, if you really believe that. And that can make grief really pretty complicated, you know. Gosh, yeah. And then people who believe that the soul is eternal, for example, tend to be more open to all of the frequently reported spiritual experiences that happen either directly with the loved one who's died or through a medium. And that can be significantly transformative for people. Well, if it's transformative, it's significant. But you know what I mean? It can be a huge part of the healing process. So religion and spirituality are really, really important ones. And I want to point out one other one, but I just want to stop for a moment and let you pace. All of this sounds really good. I mean, I I am like curious because I I feel like, I don't know, even just the way you described it, like there is like such like a I don't know. I feel like the phrase that came to mind is as you are in this niche, there's like this, you know, it's this simultaneous need to be, I mean, all of all of our space like really does call us to multicultural competence, but yeah. like, especially in a space like this, right? Like where there are so many nuances and, you know, and especially like even things like power dynamics, right? Like in all of these things, I mean, I don't know, the thing that was just coming up for me is just the where, like, need to be just so keenly aware of this, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's really important. And so it's the ways in which it manifests. And I want to, if I can say uh, two other things around Yeah, of this. course. Okay. Of course. So one of the things that I'm being more 
open about is that for me, I'm, I just call myself a little spiritual bunny um, or woo-woo bunny. And, you know, I'm not, I don't try to convince other people to believe what, what I believe. When people are open, what happens for me is that my ancestors like have committed to putting me on this journey and have promised to assist me and they do in the journey. And so my ancestors along with, and I honestly don't know if it's just like the ancestors of the people I'm working with or their loved ones who have died, but there's a whole bunch of folks who have passed on that are a part of this that help me to help the people that I'm working with. And so I oftentimes or sometimes when clients are stuck, I get, I know to say something or to ask a question that I know it's not, I just know when it's for me to just ask and not to get in the way and to analyze. I don't know how else to explain that. And so it, it, that assistance comes when oftentimes when people are stuck. And so but I don't get that if the person that I'm working with isn't spiritual or doesn't believe in that or might be spooked by any of that, I don't get any, nothing comes to share with them, if that makes sense. So I don't try to put, I just remain open to what the work that I'm here to do, the, to be the vessel for the healing in all the ways that I am from my clinical training, of course, but also from the, the ancestral work. And so, yeah, that's a really important part of what I do that I'm ultimately grateful for and that, you know, I'm leaning, I'm getting more comfortable with, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's that integration of both the training with honoring your life and your yeah. ancestors yeah. and, you know? Yeah. It's beautiful work. I don't know how else even to put it, you know, it's hard, but imagine it's hard and challenging, but it's like truly beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Sonia, I am just so grateful for you. I'm grateful. I feel like we could probably have another hour-long conversation. Absolutely. But that's part two. That's part two. That's part two, for sure. Yeah. And that will be to talk about all the ways in which grief is influenced by, particularly complicated grief, is influenced by all the things that are happening in the world. But that's another conversation. Part two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds great. Um, Where can we learn more about you and, and some of the awesome stuff that you're doing in the world? So as it relates to clinical practice, particularly grief, you can find me at drsonyalot.com, D-R-S-O-N-Y-A-L-O-T-T.com. And my contact information, of course, is there, you know, phone and email. And also, if you're interested in continuing education and multicultural psychology, I have a set of new courses coming up for fall that aren't yet posted, but will be soon. And that's at simpsych.com, C-E-M-P-S-Y-C-H.com. Perfect. And I will put that on the show notes page. Sonia, I'm so grateful for you and grateful for our friendship and all you do to support our field. Awesome. And I feel exactly the same about you. I'm really grateful for all that you've contributed and, you know, what I've learned, what I continue to learn from you. And even more than that, that your heart and that openness, your heart-centeredness, and, and, and how it's led to so many beautiful new connections for me with other heart-centered people. I'm like eternally grateful for you. You're so welcome, and have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks, Melvin. Bye. Hey there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sonia, and especially if you are in a season where you have often 
I wondered and been wanting to do some more training around grief work. I encourage you definitely to check out the resource that Sonia shared, which is again the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University School of Social Work. And because there, I mean, there's one in the middle of this pandemic, which I, I we didn't get to talk about much in this conversation, but it is like a, a tremendous grief event, you know, and uh, there's such a need for, for this work. And especially I, I feel like if you've been called to this, um, I encourage you to just really take that next step and consider. You can learn more again at Sonia's website about her private practice over at drsonialott.com. And then if you are looking for continuing education, especially when it comes to um, multicultural psychology and developing a multicultural orientation and all of that entails. I encourage you to check out sempsych.com. I've actually taken a couple of CEU courses through sempsych, especially because for me, especially with everything that's going on in our society, one of the things that has been on my heart is I want to lead well. And I think one of the most important things that Sonia has taught me about leading well is that we have to do our own work and continue to do our own work. And so definitely encourage you to check out both of those resources as well. I was thinking about this conversation I had with Sonia and just some of the things that that I took away. One is just at a practical level, like how to distinguish between complicated grief and what might be sort of a normal and expected grief reaction. That was just really helpful for me to understand. I think the other thing that really took away is, and again, for me, I, I think one of the things I constantly have to navigate is loving this work and loving doing it, but at the same time wanting to also make sure that I I'm aware of like other parts of my life, right? Being a a great husband and being a great dad to Chloe and all of those different things. And so I just, I'm trying to figure out how to sort of navigate this calling I've often felt to do this work uh, as well and, and balancing all of those other things. I wanted to invite you to download the free online course guide if you are thinking about launching an online course and just want some things that have been helpful Uh, for me and some of the tough lessons that I learned along the way. You can again download that over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. And as I mentioned right at the beginning, we're actually starting a live cohort called Online Course School. This is a great opportunity to join with other therapists to validate and launch and record your online course. The best way to find out about this and to keep updated when the core launches is to download, again, the online course guide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. Have a great rest of your day and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up 
your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.